We've read Galatians 5, 16 to 24. I'm going to ask you to have your Bible open. We're going to reference that passage regularly this morning. Let me just bring you up to speed on the book of Galatians. Those of you who are reading through the New Testament with us this year know that we've just come through Galatians uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I just draw your attention to Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So Galatia was not a city, it was a region. It would be like writing a letter to the churches of the Permian Basin. Paul and his co-workers had traveled through this region on a mission trip. They'd shared the gospel. They'd planted churches. They'd moved on to other places. And behind Paul and his co-workers, a group of false teachers moved through, and those false teachers were known as Judaizers. Those false teachers came to town with a very subtle, very deceptive doctrine. They basically said, look, we're so glad that Paul came to tell you about Jesus. We hope you love Jesus. We just want to make sure that Paul told you that you know you also have to keep the entirety of the Old Covenant if you want God to love you, if you want to be saved. You have to keep all of the Old Covenant, Old Testament laws, laws about food, dietary laws, laws about holiness and cleanliness, laws about the Sabbath, laws about circumcision. You need Jesus, but you also will need to keep all of these laws. Paul, in turn, heard about the Judaizers and this false teaching and he wrote this letter to the churches of the region of Galatia. Paul wrote this letter to remind the churches in Galatia that salvation was by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by human works. You cannot obey enough to earn your way into the kingdom of God. Paul says this very clearly in Galatians chapter 2. You can look at it in your Bible. You can look at it on the screen. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. I don't know that you could write a sentence more clear than that. He says the same thing three or four or five different ways. He's hammering home this truth. You cannot obey God's law enough to save yourself. The only way that you can be saved, the only way that you can be declared righteous, justified in God's sight, is by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing in Christ Jesus. So he says that in this letter. Now you should know that the Judaizers knew that this is what Paul was teaching. And so here was their sort of verbal debate response to what Paul was arguing. They would, in turn, say something like this. Well, Paul, if justification really is by faith alone and not works, 
I guess people just need to put their faith in Jesus, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, whatever, and then they can do whatever they want to do with the rest of their life. They can live in as much sin and filth and wickedness as long as they have trusted in Jesus. They're trying to mock Paul. They're not advocating that this is true. They're just saying, look, if Paul is right, this only makes sense. Paul in Galatians 2.17, says that is not sense, it's nonsense. And Paul goes on in this book to say this. He says, Christians are saved by faith alone. And Christians are not free to live lives of unrepentant sin. He holds both of those things together. He says they're both true. You can only be saved through faith in Jesus. That's the only way you can be made right with God. And after that happens, you are not free to go on and live a life of unchecked, unrepentant, moral rebellion against God. And the way that he argues, he holds those two things together in Galatians, is he talks about death, spiritual death. We've died to the law. And he talks about slavery. God has set us free from the law. And I've given you the verses where you can chase out some of those metaphors in Galatians if you'd like to do that. Here's the real question by the time you get to Galatians 5. It's very simple. Paul is saying the only way you can be saved is faith alone in Jesus alone. He's been saying that doesn't mean you can go sin all you want. So the question is, what do we do? After we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, how should we live our lives? And the answer to that question is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, 16 to 24. The big idea is very simple. Christians walk by the Spirit. Christians do not try to keep the law of God so that God will love us. We're not trying to earn salvation from God. However, Christians do walk by the Spirit. So let's just start off thinking about this idea of walking. A couple of weeks ago, we took a group of preteens, third, fourth, and fifth graders, to Hidden Falls Ranch. It's right on the south rim of Paladura Canyon up in the Panhandle. Most of those kids are our kids. Mission Dorado came. They brought a few kids too, so we were one big group for the week. We had a great week at camp. It was the second year we've gone to Hidden Falls Ranch. And one of the things that we have done both years when we went to Hidden Falls Ranch is we took the kids on a hike. We went walking into the canyon. Now, most of the guides who lead these hikes are older high school students. They're college-age students. And they look at our group, and they look at the age and the size of our kiddos, and they say, let's go on the short hike. You just sort of go down, and then you come right back up. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. It's really pretty easy. And our sponsors, both years, and if we go next year, we'll say it again, have said, no, we want to go on the super hike. That's what they call it. The super hike. Now, that picture is not the best picture. You can't see the, the canyon really great through uh, this picture on our projectors, but that's Paladura Canyon. And the super hike is a hike all the way down into the canyon. And if you go all the way down into the canyon, that means you have to come all the way back up out of the canyon. So you start off on this rocky sort of stairway climbing down, and you're moving very, very slow. There's a part in the hike where you have to use a rope 
You have to turn backwards and sort of scoot down this little muddy hill backwards to get to a waterfall, but once you've scooted down backwards with the rope, you have to come back out with the rope. You have to climb out that way. You hike and you hike and you go by several different waterfalls, some neat stuff, and you hike and you hike some more, and you hike and you hike some more, and then you come to the part where you've got to climb out of Paladura Canyon. Now, just quick show of hands because I'm looking around the room. How many of you preteens have gone on this super hike? with me and at camp. So look around. You see some of these hands going up. Let me tell everyone else what it sounds like to go on the super hike. I'm hot. I'm tired. Are we almost done? To which we say, yeah, it's just right over that little, we're almost there. Five more minutes, you're done. Easy. If you've ever climbed anything up, you know that you can look up and you think, that's it. One more rise, and then you get up that rise, and you say, nope, we're not done. you got to keep going. There's a lot of, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. Can a helicopter come get me and bring me back to the cabin? Can the ambulance come down and carry me out? Where are the firemen? Okay. So, honest confession, I was telling this story in the first service, and I came under deep conviction. Because I looked at the back row of the first service, and sitting on the back row was my childhood pastor, David Evans. His family lived right down the street from ours. His sons were friends of mine, and our families used to go on vacation together. We would go skiing in Angel Fire, Red River a lot, and we would go in the summer, and we would go hiking. And as I was playfully teasing with our preteens, I'm looking at the back row, and I'm remembering a time in New Mexico with his family and my family, when we didn't hike down and up a canyon, but we just went straight up a mountain. And I was not a preteen. I was very much a middle school boy. And I remember me and my pastor's sons saying, we're hot. Are we almost there? Can we turn around? Will somebody come rescue us? And I'll be honest with you, we we whined and we complained so much that they did just turn around. We didn't finish the hike. We came all the way down. And for the rest of the vacation, we were mocked for being weak and wimpy and soft. You're a bunch of girls. And I could hear him. I could see him on the back row. I could hear him thinking it. That was you when you were in middle school. You were past pre-teenage. You couldn't finish the hike. Walking. I want you to think about walking. It's slow, isn't it? It's not the fastest mode of transportation. It's directional. You've got to set a course and you've got to move in a certain direction. It's very slow. It is purposeful. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. In fact, sometimes we go on the super hike and sometimes kids get so upset, that's the encouragement. We need you to take one more step. We need you to take one more step. Just keep going a little bit further. So it is purposeful. You do make progress. Did I mention that it's slow? Walking is slow. It's accomplishing something because when you walk, you do move from one point to another. You make progress, but you make progress slowly. It's not like our microwave technological age where you just push a button and zap it and it's ready. It's slow, and it's tiring, and it takes work. 
the Bible actually has a lot to say about walking. The Bible talks about walking when it talks about our relationship with God. It talks about walking when it describes the way that we live in this world when we have a relationship with God. So just think with me about some biblical examples. We won't turn to these. I just want you to think. In the book of Genesis, we read that the Lord God used to come and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. They didn't run laps. They didn't just sit at a table, but they walked together. And they enjoyed relationship together. They enjoyed time together. We read just a few verses later about a man named Enoch, who unlike all the other people around him, Enoch walked with God. And then we get to a man named Noah. When the earth was wicked and corrupt, and the thoughts and the intentions of every human heart were only evil continually, we read about this man named Noah. Guess what he did? He walked with God. He had a relationship with God, and his life was different because of it. You get to the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is about to die. Joshua is about to take over. Moses is preaching his last sermon to the wilderness generation before they go into the promised land. And Moses says, Deuteronomy 8.6, you need to walk very carefully in the ways of the Lord. He's not telling them how to walk across the Jordan River and into the promised land. They could handle that. He's saying your relationship with God, you must be very careful about it. And the way you live must be different because of the relationship you have with God. Many, many centuries later, a Hebrew prophet named Micah, Micah 6.8. Micah told God's people, you need to walk humbly with your God. Your relationship with Him needs to be marked by humility. And the way that you live your life needs to be different because of the humility that you have before God. All this carries over into the New Testament. Paul tells the church in Rome, you need to walk appropriately. You need to walk rightly, implying that there's a way to walk wrongly. He tells the church in Corinth, you need to walk by faith, not by what you can see, not by what you feel, but you need to walk by faith in God and His promises. John, 1 John 1, he says, you need to walk as in the daytime, not at nighttime. He's not telling you what time of day to walk. He's saying there's a certain way of living your life that would be fitting of the relationship you have with God. Walk in the light, not in the dark. Your walk. Paul picks up on all of that in Galatians 5, and he says to believers, walk by the Spirit. I just want you to see three summary truths from this paragraph, and then we'll think about application. The first thing I want you to see about walking in Galatians 5, your walk will either be characterized by works of the flesh or by the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lays that out very clearly in the first part of this paragraph. Your life will be characterized by one of two realities, either the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. 
He talks about the works of the flesh in verse 19, 20, and 21. And his conclusion is at the end of 21, the conclusion after he lists out all the works of the flesh is, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. My Bible actually has a footnote. The ESV has a footnote that explains that verb do, and it explains that that verb do means to continue to practice these things. If you continue to walk in this way, you continue to make this the broad direction of your life, the works of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22 and verse 23. And his conclusion is at the end of verse 23, he says, against such things there is no law. Now some of you are grammar Nazis. Maybe you're an English teacher. Or maybe you were born to be an English teacher and you missed your calling in life. And some of you are looking at this list of the fruit of the Spirit and you're saying, Paul, really these are fruits, plural. You have listed more than one thing here, Paul. Really this is the fruits of the Spirit. But it's not a mistake. It is the fruit of the Spirit. This is not like you and me going to HEB or Market Street or wherever you like to shop and saying, I'll take a bunch of bananas, but I'm going to pass on the kumquats. You don't get to pick and choose with the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get to say, you know what? I'm really good at love. Love is my fruit. But the self-control stuff, have you ever driven on 42nd Street? I'm no good at that. I'm not even, just forget it. It's not, that's not how it works. You don't get to pick and choose. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a package deal. Your walk will be characterized by the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let's be honest about a couple of things when it comes to the works of the flesh. The first thing we need to be honest about is that this list that Paul details, the works of the flesh, it is not a comprehensive list, it's a representative list. You notice what he says at the end of verse 21, he lists all these works of the flesh and he says, and things like these. We could go on and on and on with the works of the flesh. I mean, that's a pretty good list. It covers a lot of the Ten Commandments. It covers a lot of God's law, but Paul's saying, I could go on and I could add more things like this. Let's be honest about something else. When you and I read this list of the works of the flesh, we face a temptation. And the temptation is to say, wow, some of these things are big sins. And some of these things don't seem that big at all. Let me list you my big ones. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, orgies. Those seem like a pretty big deal to me. But then I read some of the others in the list, and they're all just mixed in together. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And I think, well, those don't seem to be quite as serious. I, when I make that distinction, and you, when you make that distinction, are making the mistake of thinking that there is such thing as a respectable sin. One of my favorite authors, his name is Jerry Bridges. 
He was born in Tyler, Texas in the 1920s. He passed away in 2016. He wrote a book called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. It's in our church library. I commend it to you. It's a fascinating book. And you know what? In the book, he doesn't talk about the drunkenness and the orgies and the immorality and the idolatry and the sorcery. He doesn't deal with that stuff. He deals with the stuff that we tend to think is not that big a deal. Stuff like jealousy, rivalries, divisions, anger, envy. Let's be honest. Jerry Bridges was born into a world that's very different than our world. And it may be true in Jerry Bridges' growing up years and in certain pockets of Christian culture today that people still lean towards this division of bad sins and respectable sins. Can we just be honest when you look at that list of the works of the flesh and say that you and I live today in a culture that celebrates everything on that list? All of it. It's not just accepted, it is celebrated and commended to you as something that will make you happy. Can we be honest that increasingly in churches that you see all across the United States of America, these things are not even viewed as respectable sins. They're just sort of ignored and tolerated as no big deal at all. Paul thinks they're a big deal. He doesn't divide them into two lists grade them, rank them. He's not asking for you to vote on them. He's simply saying your life is going to be marked by one of two directions. Either you're going to chase the works of the flesh, and you may read that list and say, well, I'm like, I'm like in the middle. My life is characterized by some of these things, but some of those things I don't do. Well, don't pat yourself on the back. That means your life is characterized by the works of the flesh. Or your life will be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Your life will be dominated by one of these two realities. Listen very careful. The question is not, it's not, have you ever done any of the works of the flesh? Because guess what? You have. So is your pastor. The question is not, Do you score an 85 or a 90 or a 95 or above on the fruit of the Spirit? Because guess what? You don't. The question is not, have you ever done anything bad or do you always do what is right? The question is, what is the trajectory of your life? When you commit one of these works of the flesh, are you convicted about it? Do you grieve over your sin? Are you moved to repentance? Increasingly in your life, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? And have you, do you have a desire to manifest these fruit in your life? One of these things will be true of you. Works of the flesh, things like these, or the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the second truth, just to summarize this paragraph. The Christian who bears the fruit of the Spirit is not working for his or her salvation. Seeking to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life does not mean you are making the deadly mistake of trying to earn your salvation with God. Look at verse 16. Paul says, but I say, 
Walk by the Spirit. Let me remove any question you have and tell you that in the original language, that word walk is an imperative. It is a command. It is not a suggestion. It is not there for your consideration. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a command. Walk by the Spirit. And when I tell you that, you may be tempted to think, well, Paul is playing a theological shell game. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth, which is what preachers seem to do best. He has already said, we are not justified by works of the law. That is not how we can be saved. But now he is telling me that I must walk by the Spirit, and it's not optional. It seems as he as if he has replaced one law with another. He's taken the Old Covenant law, Old Testament law, and replaced it with this list of the fruit of the Spirit. And he said, you don't have to do this to be saved, but you do have to do this to be saved. But that would be to misunderstand what Paul's saying in this paragraph. Look what Paul says in verse 18. Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, I'm not just giving you a new to-do list so that God will love you. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. And notice the terms he chooses in verse 19 and verse 22. You've already written them on your handout if you're taking notes. He talks about works of the flesh, but he does not talk about works of the Spirit. He talks about fruit of the Spirit. And just comparing and contrasting the two, you might expect him to say, yeah, works of the flesh, that's bad stuff, don't do this. Here are the works of the Spirit, the good things that you can do in your life so that God will love you. But that's the mistake of the Judaizers, and Paul doesn't make that mistake. He's comparing works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. He's using an agricultural metaphor, and it's not hard to understand. Every farmer starts with seed, and they put the seed in the ground, and they pray that God would send rain, they pray that the sun would shine, and they hope that that seed would turn into a living plant. And if they can keep that living plant alive and care for it properly, in the end, there will be fruit. That's the picture of how salvation works in our lives. It starts with the seed of the Word of God. Somebody plants the seed of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, into our lives. I can't make it grow. You can't make it grow. We saw in 1 Corinthians that only God can give the growth. Paul planted, Apollos watered. God gives the growth. And when there's really something alive, eventually there's a harvest. There's fruit. The fruit is not the thing that makes the plant alive. The fruit is the thing that's there because the plant is alive. Paul, in this passage, just because in your life you seek to live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and you're serious about it, does not automatically mean you've made the mistake of trying to earn your way with God. Let's connect that with the next point on your notes. I couldn't say it any better than Paul said it or summarize it any better, so I just quoted Galatians 5.24. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Straight out of verse 24. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have crucified the flesh. That's a change in the paragraph. Because all the way through this paragraph, he's been talking about fruit, bearing fruit. Something that's alive bears fruit. But now all of a sudden he's talking about killing, crucifying. And he's not talking about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. He's talking about us killing the flesh. The Greek word there is sarx. In English you would spell it S-A-R-X, sarx. And it's the old self. It's who we are apart from God's grace. It's the part of us that even after We've been made alive and we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus, still desires to follow after the works of the flesh. And Paul says, if you belong to Jesus, you have got to kill your flesh. That old part of you that wants to walk in those old ways, you've got to put it to death. In the 1600s, there was an English Puritan named John Owen. He's a brilliant man. He wrote lots of books. One of the books that he wrote is called The Mortification of Sin. When you hear the word mortification, you probably think about being embarrassed. You might say, oh, let me tell you what happened to me this week. I was here and this happened and people were watching and I was so embarrassed. I was mortified. I was just humiliated. Or you say, I was at church and the band was singing and they hit all the right notes and I thought it was time to come in on the chorus and it wasn't time and I came in and I made this awkward noise and everyone saw me and I think the person behind me was laughing at me. Oh, I was mortified. That word means more than just embarrassed. It literally means I felt like I could die. The root of that word is, is found in the word mortician. Someone who cares for the dead. And when John Owen wrote this book, The Mortification of Sin, he's talking about what Paul's describing in Galatians 5. He's saying, you have got to kill your flesh. You've got to crucify it. And you've got to fight and you've got to be serious about it. There's a lot of great quotes from this book. Let me just share with you my favorite. John Owen, The Mortification of Sin, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. All he's doing is summarizing what Paul says here in Galatians 5. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans chapter 3, or Romans chapter 8, excuse me. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, there's our word, the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, the old self, works of the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, not on your own strength, you're relying on the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death, you crucify the deeds of the body, you will live. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. I'm pretty firmly convinced this is a missing piece of Christianity in the United States of America today. I think in the United States, we do a good job of telling people that God loves them. And I think we do a pretty good job of asking people to invite Jesus into their heart. I think we do a good job of holding out to people the hope of heaven instead of hell. 
I think we do a reasonably good job in the United States at telling people that God can change their life. He can change your way you approach your career and work. He can change the way you approach your family and your marriage and parenting. He can change the way you handle your finances and money. All those things are true. We do a good job of talking about all those things. I don't think we talk very much about crucifying your flesh, putting sin to death in your life, mortifying sin, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. I don't think we talk about that nearly enough, if at all. In fact, I think when you start to talk about that today, a lot of people and a lot of churches have a gut-level reaction, and they hear you say, put sin to death, and their response is, you're a Pharisee. You're a Judaizer. That's legalism. You're telling me there's something I have to do in order for God to love me. But that's not what we're saying, and it's certainly not what Paul was saying. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Crucify your flesh. I would just ask you, think about your life. Think about the last week, the last month, maybe the last year. Has there been any moment in your life in recent history where you have tried to kill a sin in your life? Or have you just sort of been going with the flow, walking in works of the flesh, comparing yourself to other people, makes you feel better about yourself sometimes, justifying sin, excusing sin? Has there been any moment in the last week, month, year where you have intentionally, actively, purposely set out to say, I have got to kill this sin or it is going to kill me? Let me give you an illustration of this, and I'm going to tie this crucifixion stuff back in with agriculture. When my family moved to Frankfort, Kentucky, to pastor the very first church I pastored, North Benson Baptist Church, we bought a house. It was the first house Brooke and I ever bought. It was on Devil's Hollow Road. We thought it was out in the country. All the people at our church thought it was in town, but it was sort of in that middle area. Our house sat right out close to Devil's Hollow Road, and we had this long, narrow lot that went way, 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 way back. And we had beautiful grass because it's Kentucky, and it rains all the time like it's rained this week, and you don't have to water, and it's amazing. And we had this great yard in the back, and in the back, right in the middle of our grass, the previous owner had planted a yucca plant. And I don't mean like it was in a flower bed in the backyard. It was up beside our garage, which was detached. I'm not saying it was like there for, you know, some sort of decoration. I have yuccas at my house now. They're fine. I like them. They're great. They're easy to care for. I'm just telling you, it was out in the middle of the grass, right in the middle of the yard. And I would look for the first few weeks we were there. I would look at my grass and think, it'd look a whole lot better if that yucca wasn't there. I'm going to cut it down. So I went out. Cut it down. If you've ever tried to cut down a yucca, you know it's not that hard. Pull the spines aside, cut it down. Then I stood back and I admired my grass. What happened two weeks later? I had a yucca plant right in the middle of my backyard. Right where the other one was. I cut it down. Threw it out. What happened two weeks later? It was back, so I got a shovel. And I started digging 
The neighbors probably thought I was trying to bury a body. I opened up this hole in the earth and I was pulling roots out from every direction all the way down deep. I mean, it was big. And I thought, I got it, man. I got it. I have killed this yucca plant. And you know what? For the rest of that summer, nothing but grass. The next spring, yucca plant. Same spot. We bought a house in Odessa. Over on the side of my house, there's a little strip of grass right next to a flower bed. Flower bed would be an amazing place to plant a yucca plant. But right in this strip of grass, yucca plant. Right there, in the middle of the grass. It drives me crazy. I haven't got the shovel out. I've not tried to bury anybody on the side of my house. But every week, every Saturday morning, I mow over the top of that yucca plant. And I get great satisfaction in it. And then about Thursday, I peek my my head out the window and I say, there it is. It's back. I thought I got him Saturday morning. He's back. That's your flesh as a believer. That's indwelling sin as a believer. That's your battle against the misdeeds of the body as a Christian. You just got to keep killing it. You got to do it today, and you're going to have to do it tomorrow, and you're going to have to do it the next day. Every Saturday, you're going to have to mow over that yucca plant. You're going to have to put to death the misdeeds of the body. It does not mean somebody who's serious about putting sin to death in their life. That does not mean that that person is trying to earn their way with God. It may be true that you're trying to earn your way with God, but just because you see somebody who says, you know what, I need to kill this thing in my life, doesn't mean they're trying to earn their way with God. They just might understand Romans 8.13 and Galatians 5.24, and they might agree what John Owen said. He is exactly right. You better be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So what do we do? How do we respond to this passage? Four simple thoughts. Number one, confess your sin to God. Just confess it to God. Agree with God about your sin. If you flip over and look at Galatians 3.10, it says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Guess what? That's you and me. We have not abided by all of the things written in the book of the law and done them perfectly. That means, according to Deuteronomy, which Paul quotes in Galatians 3.10, we are under a curse. You can buy the wisdom of this world and you can stick your head in the spiritual sand and you can say, I don't like it when the preacher calls me a sinner and I don't like it when he says I'm under a curse. It doesn't change anything. You have not kept the law of God perfectly, and you are left to yourself under a curse. You should agree with God about that reality. You should confess your sin to God. Secondly, you should believe the good news about Jesus. And it's really good news. It's right back over in Galatians 3, verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, was crucified. And He bore the curse for His people that you might live. 
He died to pay the penalty for your sins. Do you, have you believed the good news? Thirdly, walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, if you have confessed your sin to God and you have believed the good news about Jesus, this command in verse 16 is for you. Not a suggestion. It's not there for your consideration. It's an imperative to be obeyed. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Not because you're trying to earn your way with God, but because the Lord Jesus Christ bore the curse in your place and you understand how deadly serious sin is. You understand that I'd better be killing it or it will be killing me. Which brings us to number four, crucify your flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Don't miss this. The call to crucify your flesh is for people who already belong to Jesus. You cannot take these four things I've given you and rearrange them or remove some of them and end up with the same result. You cannot start off by saying, I'm going to crucify my flesh, clean myself up so that God will love me, and then I'll get to all the other stuff on the list. No, you have to first just agree with God about your sin. God, I have not abided by all things written in the law and done them. I'm under a curse. I believe that the Lord Jesus was cursed so that I might walk free, that I might be brought into your family, that I might be justified and declared righteous. God, I want to walk by the Spirit in His power, not my own, but in His power, and by the Spirit, I want to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Yes, I want to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, but I also want to be serious about killing sin so that sin doesn't kill me.